Today we come to verses 113 to 128. It says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. I've done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. May it be so. You may be seated. Well, as we've been studying this great psalm together, Psalm 119, these past several weeks, we've been witnessing a psalm that is deeply personal. It's intimate. It's a man before his God. Apart from a couple of mentions of other people, sometimes friends, more often foes, the vast majority of the psalm is one man talking to his God. It's an example of what another psalm calls pouring out your heart to the Lord. It arises out of severe suffering. This man is, or at least he feels like he is, a, a sojourner, a, a pilgrim in a foreign land. He's in enemy territory. And so he's misunderstood and misrepresented and maligned and directly opposed. He's even threatened. And he alludes to his life hanging in the balance. And he talks to God about all this. Again, he pours out his heart to God about these things. And he keeps coming back to the Bible as his focal point. The Bible is his sustenance in suffering. He delights in the Bible. He loves the Bible in good times and in bad. The psalm appears impulsive uh, because it is an example of one pouring out their heart to the Lord. It appears to be the written record of a man whose pen could barely keep up with his prayer, his thoughts, his words, his hand maybe couldn't write fast enough and get it down. Some have called this psalm something like a kaleidoscope with about eight or so different themes. Praise and requests and lament and Bible 
and enemies and suffering and resolve and obedience. And so it seems with each new section, the kaleidoscope has been spun and there's this new combination of ideas and order of thoughts. And the next theme seems to come as quickly as the numbers in between the words come, at least in our English Bibles. So at times, the, the psalm can feel like it's a little bit arbitrary or even chaotic in its organization. But we've been seeing that Psalm 119 is not at all chaotic. It does flow out of suffering. It is very personal. It does appear impulsive, but it's very deliberate as well. It's methodical. You see that first in its structure as what's called an acrostic poem, where in this case, in the original Hebrew, each eight verses, they each begin with the same letter. And so eight verses begin with Aleph in the Hebrew alphabet, and then eight verses begin with Bet in the Hebrew alphabet, and then eight verses begin with Gimel. This psalm is no random spewing of ADD-like praying. This is instead just the methodical and memorable poetry of a man who dares to teach God's people how to relate to God with their Bibles open before them. It's what used to be called catechesis, catechisms. They instruct, they teach. We're to memorize them and pass them on to our kids. And Psalm 119 was to be that long ago for the Hebrew saints. In its structure of Aleph to Tav, or in our language it would be from A to Z, it probably implies that this is the A to Z of God's word. This is the A to Z of suffering people relating to their God. But we've been seeing even more in our careful study of Psalm 119, week by week, taking a couple of these stanzas at a time, that there's even more deliberateness than just the A to Z or Aleph to Tav of the psalm. Each couple of stanzas we've seen have seemed to pair up with shared themes between them. And often the shared themes in language are placed in conspicuous matching locations between the two stanzas. So let's see it again in our passage for this week. We've read it already, verses 113 to 128, Samak and Ein in the Hebrew headings. And notice our passage begins and ends with the shared themes of hate and love. Verse 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. And then verse 127 at the end, therefore, I love your commandments. Verse 128, I hate every false way. This is classic book ending in Hebrew poetry, and it is purposeful and deliberate. This takes planning. This is methodical. But it's not just mechanical. We need to do much more than just analyze it on a literary level. So don't forget the other things we've already noted this morning about this great psalm. That it's deeply personal. That it arises out of suffering. That it's an exemplary model of pouring out your heart before God. 
It's deeply emotional. And it appears to be impulsive. But it's also instructive. It's methodically rich. It teaches us what to say to God. What to ask of God. How to feel before God. And how to put our feelings into words before God. Especially in suffering times. And so if we will lean well on Psalm 119, on the one hand, we will find the freedom to pray this honestly and this, this boldly. And on the other hand, we will also at times be challenged by this psalm to think and feel and say things we may not have thought we could say or should say before God. For example, hating things. Hating things. Can we talk to God about what we hate? Should we hate anything? Should we hate evil? Do we hate evil? Well, that's the first of five challenging and sometimes encouraging themes I want to point out to us. Hating evil. That's the first of five And it's the first of these five themes that is the most difficult for us to digest. And so we'll take more time on it. It begins, I hate the double-minded. It ends, I hate every false way. Now it's no real struggle to hate evil, especially the more heinous, sinister, and harmful kind of evil. Any decent human being, Christian or not, should hate genocide and hate human trafficking and and hate terrorism. More challenging is to hate every false way. To hate covetousness is much more rare. It's harder to do. To hate materialism? Well, who among us would dare say we do? To hate vanity? Or trusting in money? Or a little self-promotion here or there? As long as it's not too obvious? Well, God's people need to hate every false way. They need to cultivate a holy hatred toward sin. Even their own, especially their own. But what about hating people? I mean, surely that can't be right. And yet that's exactly what verse 113 says. What should we make of that? I hate the double-minded. Well, in this case, in this part of Psalm 119, one thing we should note is that he's not here referring to the world generally. He's not referring to unbelievers. He's not not referring to outsiders. He's not referring to pagans. Those who don't profess any allegiance to God are really not double-minded. They're single-minded. It takes a hypocrite to be double-minded. And that's what he's bemoaning. Hypocrites, those who say one thing, they identify with God. But their actions prove otherwise. And he hates that. He hates them. Now, to be fair, there are other parts of the Bible that talk about God hating the wicked... And yes, also other parts that talk about God loving the world. Uh, That's for another time. This passage isn't really dealing with that. 
There are other passages as well that, that talk about God's people representing God's judgment on the wicked world. Like Psalm 3 would be an example if you want to read that later on. And if we're in pa- passages like that, we'll work through them slightly different than what we're talking about this morning. That's for another time. Our passage, looking at verse 113, and in other verses like 118, you spurn all who, notice, go astray from your statutes. You see, he's lamenting here specifically those who identify with God, but by their actions prove they have no real allegiance to God. That word double-minded is only used in one other place in the whole Old Testament. And it's in 1 Kings 18. If you want to turn there, turn to 1 Kings 18, or you'll see it up on the screens if you'd rather just look there. But this is a passage when the wayward king of Israel, Ahab, and his bad wife, Jezebel, uh, they started instituting worship of the false god, Baal. And Elijah, the good and faithful prophet, confronted it. And here's what he says in 1 Kings 18, picking up in the middle of verse 18. You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? There's our word, double-minded. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You see here, they're... Double-mindedness was rightly confronted. That's why I've entitled this message, Drawing Lines. That's what the prophet was doing. That's what was needed. And it would have been fitting for, prophet, for the prophet Elijah to walk away from that confrontation that day, shaking his head a little and maybe whispering to himself, I hate the double-minded. I hate every false way. It would have been fitting for him to say to those who would rather side with Baal, depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep God's commands. It would have been right for him to pray like verse 118 of Psalm 119. Lord, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes. It's, or verse 126, it's time for you to act. For your law has been broken. Or another example. Numbers 13 and 14. Here that one word, double-minded, isn't used, but it's a classic example of double-mindedness. Let me read some passages in Numbers 13 and 14. In Numbers 13, God told Moses to send spies into the promised land to see what's what to see what they're up against, to see, you know, how good it is and how bad the opponent is. And so 12 spies go in, and two different reports come back. One represents the godly, optimistic opinion. The other represents the ungodly, pessimistic 
opinion. So now we'll pick up in Numbers 13, verse 25. At the end of the 40 days of spying on the enemy, they returned from spying out the land. Verse 27. And they, this is the majority report, the 10 of the 12 spies, they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And verse 30, the minority report, the godly report, comes in. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we will be able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And then in chapter 14, listen to this. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. The people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, their leaders. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. But then in verse 7, Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies, they said to the people, The land which we possessed... Fruit, uh, we've passed through to spy it out, is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. These are people who walked through dry ground at the Red Sea and saw the Egyptian army die under its waves after they were safely on the other side. These are double-minded people, and the examples are everywhere in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we learn to take careful note of these kind of stories because they are warnings for us, and we shouldn't do what they did. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that this is one primary use of the Old Testament. The stories warn us what not to do. But also in the New Testament, we're given instructions for how to draw lines for the covenant community. Passages like Matthew 16, where the church is said to bind in loose, to, to pull in and, when necessary, to put out. Matthew 18 and in 1 Corinthians 5 are passages that tell a church explicitly what to do when a professing Christian begins, and really for a sustained period of time, is willful and deliberate and unrepentant with their sin. And hence, they're beginning to show signs that their profession of Christ is not really possession of Christ, or maybe better, his possession of them. Their profession's empty. And there is a time to identify that. Christians should hate double-mindedness. 
And they should be willing to identify double-mindedness. And, and there's more we can say, especially from the New Testament. That Christians aren't motivated merely by a hate of double-mindedness, but also by a love for sinners and those going astray. We know in the grand scope of things that it's loving to draw lines Matthew 18 is talking about. Because spiritual self-deception is so deadly. That's why it's loving to tell someone that it's going on. It's not loving to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And we know as well from this little letter from the Apostle James, where the double-minded are addressed there again. They are simultaneously confronted and they are also invited into repentance and mercy. Hear how both are mingled in the book of James. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, as he quotes from the Old Testament. And then he applies it. He says, so draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, the mingling of severe confrontation and sincere invitation you can still repent if the lord has given you breath today now back to psalm 119 we've taken a couple of detours to the left in our bibles and one to the right in our bibles again we say this passage begins with hating evil that's where it ends as well but it's not the only thing it says. Secondly, it talks about loving the word. Hating evil. And secondly, loving the word. That's how it begins and how it ends. Verse 113, I love your law. Verse 127, I love your commandments above gold and above fine gold. He considers God's commandments to be right, he says. And he desires to be held up by God through the word, that he might have more regard for the word. He wants to know more about the Bible. He wants to see more than he's seen before. He longs to be taught better. And so he prays for God to teach. Verse 124, teach me your statutes, your, your ways, your principles. Verse 125, I'm your servant. I'm here. I'm, I'm ready. I'm standing at attention. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Your testimonies, that is, those things that your word says about you and what you have done and who you are and what you're like. I want to know those more. And the evil around him, no doubt, drives him to the word, drives him more and more. The, the Bible is the single sane voice in an insane, upside-down world. 
And so he says in verse 114, you're my hiding place, my shield, and I hope in your word. He hopes in the word because he's experienced that it works. He trusts it. He knows who's behind it. He loves the word because he loves the God of the word, the, the Bible. He loves God. This is all very personal. He's been comforted by God through his word. And yet with another mix of emotions juxtaposed to his love for the Bible and his comfort from the Bible, there's also a mingling with fear going on. So thirdly, he's fearing God. He's fearing God. Verse 120 puts it so pointedly. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. We've said in recent days that the Bible talks about the fear of God as something, on the one hand, that should be avoided. Don't be afraid is the most frequent command given in the Bible. On the other hand, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the foundation of wisdom, according to Proverbs. And here, obviously, it's good. My flesh trembles for fear of you. I'm afraid of your judgment. So apparently there are different kinds of fear. There's a kind of dread that Christians don't need to have before God, and there is a kind of awe that Christians must have before God. And that awe, it won't do to say, well, that's just merely respect or reverence. He says here, my flesh trembles for fear of you. He doesn't mean my flesh really respects you. My, my flesh has some reverence for you. I respect you. No, my flesh trembles for fear of you. Remember, he's been considering God's judgments Verse 118, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes. And 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. You know, when you're refining gold and the impurities come to the top and you scoop it off and you dump it aside, that's what God does with the wicked in the end. And even though he knows of God's steadfast love and his salvation... Words we'll get to in just a little bit here. He's also been pondering God's judgments, and it causes him to tremble, even if he knows he's not the recipient of it. He's a man who hates double-mindedness, yes. He's a man who prays for God to intervene indeed. But he doesn't say that tritely. He doesn't say it glibly. He prays for God's judgment to come on God's enemies, and he trembles. He knows exactly what he's saying. Charles Spurgeon said, Such was his awe in the presence of the judge of all the earth, whose judgment he had just been considering, that he exceedingly feared and trembled. Familiarity with God breeds a holy awe of him. Let me say that again. Familiarity with God breeds a holy awe 
of him. We might think of familiarity as chumminess. Familiarity as high fives. You know, knuckles. Here, with this God, familiarity with him should and must breed a holy awe of him. This man is drawing a line between God's judgments on this fallen world and a holy fear of him. And by the way, it's not just God's judgments that should cause his people to to tremble. How about his forgiveness? You get this in Psalm 130. Oh, Lord, if you should mark all my iniquities, who could stand? We'd be doomed. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There is forgiveness that you may be feared. You probably wouldn't have guessed that the last word in that sentence would be feared. There is forgiveness that you might be loved. There is forgiveness that you might be worshipped. There is forgiveness that you might be thanked. No, those are all true, but so is this. There is forgiveness that you may be feared. Our hymns teach us this so well. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. We sang this morning that old hymn, Amazing Grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace taught my heart to fear. And yet, flip it upside down, and grace my fears relieved. You see, it's both and. Both are true. Grace frees us from dread, and grace causes us to stand in awe at a holy God who forgives so much at such great cost. So this man's hating evil, loving the word, fearing God. Fourthly, he's longing for salvation. Longing for salvation. You see verse 123. My eyes long for your salvation. And what kind of salvation does he have in mind? Is it like a physical salvation? Like a a rescue? Well, it is that in part. I mean, he says in verse 116, uphold me that I, might, that I may live. And he says in verse 117, hold me up that I may be safe. And he says in verse 121, don't leave me to my oppressors. He says in verse 122, let not the insolent oppress me. He is thinking in part of physical protection. And he thinks that it's timely. It's needed right now. Verse 126, it's time for the Lord to act. But he's not merely praying for his own comfort. He's praying for justice. He's praying for God to intervene so that his his own righteous suffering might be vindicated on the whole. He's done nothing wrong, as he insists in verse 121. He's praying for God to step in and and to help and to stop these oppressors in part because he has concern for God's character and for God's name. It's time for you to act, Lord, for your law has been broken. And he's praying for God to intervene so that he can just undistractedly get back to focusing on doing God's ways 
and, and following God's commands. And he's longing for this. He's praying for this. It, it means that it hasn't come yet because he keeps praying for it and longing for it. He's like the widow in that parable of Luke 18 who just kept asking for justice and kept asking the judge for justice and pleading for justice. And she kept coming and she kept saying, it says. And then Jesus concludes that, that parable. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily though in his own timing, it's, it's speedily. The Psalm 119 man wasn't, wasn't just pray, praying for you know, more comfort, less trouble. He wasn't even just praying for justice and vindication and for the ability to get back to work in God's ways. Apparently, he also had another layer of salvation in mind. Not one temporary, but eternal. So notice the, these really key verses, 123 and 124. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. Remember that phrase, steadfast love. Represented by one Hebrew word, chesed. It's God's unchanging covenantal love to do his people good by his grace and for his glory. And this man already knows about that, and he already has experienced something of it, but he's praying for more of it. He's praying for a fuller form of it. He's pleading for God who has fulfilled his promises to ongoingly fulfill his promises and to bring them to a final fulfillment. You see that? He dares to pray for God to complete what he started, as we all should. He's longing for salvation because he already has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so in faith, he asks for the Lord to keep at it and to finish it. Fifthly, we can think about receiving a pledge from these verses, receiving a pledge. In verse 122, he puts it in a request. He says, give your servant a pledge of good. Now, what is that? That doesn't just mean give your servant a promise of good. He's already referred to a good promise. It doesn't just mean give your servant a sign of your good, like the dark clouds roll away and the balloons ascend and it's a beautiful day. It's the perfect temperature and your NFL team wins. <laughs> and for dinner, it's your favorite. No, that would be a sign of God's goodness perhaps, but that's not what he has in mind. You see, this word pledge here, it's, um, it's financial language. It means surety. It's like a down payment. You know, a, a down payment works. You know how collateral works? You know how a bond works? Well, that's what's going on here. Give your servant a pledge of good. A bond, some collateral, a down payment. 
It's used in Genesis 43 when Judah said to his father Jacob, because he wanted to take his little brother Benjamin into Egypt, he says, verse 9, I will be a pledge, there it is, of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah was saying to his dad, let me take little Benny to Egypt, and I promise if I don't bring him back, it's my head. I'll be the surety for him. I'll be the collateral for his life. I will be his living bond. Give your servant a pledge of good like that. Or as Isaiah puts it, Oh, Lord, be my security. Same word. Be my pledge. Be my down payment. Be my collateral. Lord, be my bond. Do you know when those prayer requests, like in Isaiah 38 and in our psalm in verse 122, do you know when those prayer requests were really answered? In the coming of Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection. There, God's steadfast love was finally realized, embodied even. It was proven. It was accomplished. God finally brought his covenant to its, to its fuller realities that only the Old Testament could anticipate and foreshadow. Those righteous promises of old were, were, were finally beginning to be realized with the coming of Jesus and in his death and resurrection. It was there that the pledge of good was finally made. Not just a promise of good, but the payment of good. His life for ours. He put up his life for our death. He offered himself before the Father on our behalf. He paid our debt. He was our stand-in, we could say. So draw a straight line from Psalm 119, verse 122. And do not pass go, and no need to collect $200. You take that right to the cross and resurrection of Jesus and everything that a Christian can enjoy. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus that we have an answer to the cry for justice that God's people have, have cried aloud with for many years. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus that we have victory over our enemies, not the enemies who oppress us like by a foreign government, not even, you know, the Pharisees or the Romans in the time of Jesus. Jesus made clear that our greatest enemies are the world and, and death and the devil. Satan and sin. The, death and the curse. These are our greatest enemies and Jesus bore them for us. He stood in for us. He took these on for us. He conquered them and he sets us free. In Jesus, we now have the scriptures fully embodied in his incarnation and fully filled out in the New Testament print. And so it's at the cross and resurrection of Jesus that we gaze upon it through the scriptures 
and we tremble. We tremble. We, we tremble at the judgment of God for our salvation. Jesus became a curse for us. And it's in this cross and resurrection, in this curse bearing, in his death, that we have a word of hope for all evildoers. The final word, if you're not one who sides with God, who knows Jesus, whose sins are forgiven, the final word doesn't have to be, depart from me. It doesn't have to be that the Lord discards you like dross, scooping the scum off the top and dropping it to the side. You don't have to be spurned by a holy God. But you must look to Jesus and put your hope only in him. You don't have to do anything to earn what he offers. You simply have to believe that he can give it and give it to the full. In the words of Colossians 2, this is what Paul writes about Christians, those who have experienced this already, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, our, our sins. How do you do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can you picture that? You have this certificate of debt which records your sin. And it can go away. But it just can't be swept under a rug. That's why Jesus had to die. The payment had to be made. But you can receive through faith uh, a certificate of death and debt that was nailed to the cross and receive instead a certificate of righteousness declaring you not just innocent, but perfect. Not because you are, you're not. I'm not either. Jesus was. If you're not a Christian, I pray you'd, you'd talk to the Lord about that today. Maybe you'd ask someone who invited you to come along. Maybe someone who's just sitting by you and looks like they do this kind of thing from time to time and maybe they would know something more than what you know and you'll ask them today. Christian, let's remember that Jesus was not only our pledge of good from God, but he's gone one step further. He's given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment on our final inheritance. The, the third person of the Trinity has been placed inside of you so that you would know Jesus is coming back. So that you would know he's not done with you. He's going to finish what he started. And so there's a sense in which Christians today don't need any longer to pray, Lord, give us a pledge of good. No, he has. He's given us himself on the cross and his Holy Spirit in our hearts. And he's just going to keep doing us good. He has pledged his eternal good to us in Christ and in his Holy Spirit. So how silly is it and how small and petty is it when Christians today sort of try God and try his love with some sort of arbitrary test. Lord, if you love me, you'll give me that job, won't you? Lord, if you love me, this is going to work out, right? Lord, if you love me, you better do it. 
whatever it is. Are you kidding? He's already given you the cross and the Holy Spirit. You want a sign of good? You, you want to know that there's a pledge of good? It's not in your next car. It's not in your retirement. It's not in your kids surviving it or making it or even being saved. It's in the cross and resurrection in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have all that we need. We have a pledge of good. It doesn't mean life won't be hard. It doesn't mean we won't have things that we need to pray to him about, even with tears. It doesn't mean that there won't be those out there who seek to oppress us. It doesn't mean we won't have hard things to do. It doesn't mean that we won't see some who for a time identified with us and with Jesus, and yet, heartbreakingly, their double-mindedness is becoming more and more their identity than their Christ-like-mindedness. Nevertheless, God is with us to the end. He'll do us good. He's proven that, and he's proven it with nothing less in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the implanting of his Holy Spirit as the down payment for our eternal inheritance.